All right, here we are now. And today we've got a special treat in store for you. This is a very tasty conversation that we're having. We are talking about Terence McKenna. And I'd like to share what I believe is his best idea. I'd like to uh, accentuate it, articulate it again, and just to explore some of the ideas also that are associated with what I believe is his best idea. And what that is, is that your mind takes the shape of reality. Your mind is this thing that you can, as he would sort of extend from that insight, you can input things into it to change how it operates, like water taking the shape of the glass that it's poured into. Now, his idea for this was to say, okay, if you have your waking state, where you're alive and you're just having your day, and you have your dream state, where you're dreaming at night, well, that's sort of two reference points. And that's going to get you to a certain degree of complexity, a certain shape of reality. And his idea is, well, if you bring in DMT, that is a third major component. That is a third sort of metric that your mind can use to expand into the shape of reality. Now, of course, I would say that it goes even further than this, and you don't even necessarily need DMT. We can take this down to a sort of micro vision of this, which is that the room that you're in right now, that is one set of feed-ins. That is something that is feeding into you. And stepping out that door into the next room of your house or just outside on your front porch, that would be another one. So where we draw this line, whether it's three things of gross waking state, dream state, and DMT world, or whether it's in your bathroom, in your bedroom, in your front porch, that's something we can discuss and work with. So we will get back to this. This is a very important point of Terence McKenna's, but I'd like to share sort of <laughs> some other little things in relation to this, this incredibly idiosyncratic person, this absolute personality, this absolute gem. I mean, we love Terence McKenna. What a guy. What a guy. We're going to be telling stories about him for years. There's really just such a wealth of insight, wisdom, creativity, and just plain charm to this guy. And of course, if you haven't heard of Terence McKenna, then do go go and check it out because there's so much. Yeah, I've spent so much time just listening to this guy. So where do I begin? I mean, it's a bit tricky to see, you know, well, <laughs> with such a rich and vast sort of literature to his name or contribution from him, it's a bit hard to know where to begin. And I'll say, well, where did I first hear Terence McKenna? And I remember that because that was on an album that I liked when I was in high school. And the album was LD50 by Mudvayne. So Mudvayne is a 
heavy metal, new metal band from America, I believe. And in this album, LD50, they sort of start with this ambient sort of creeping horror movie sort of soundtrack. And it's sort of like you're in this creepy horror movie and you hear this voice sort of fade in, almost like a distant radio. And it's this guy with this very peculiar accent and he's talking about something to do with the mind, something to do with evolution, sort of something to do with where we came from. You don't really catch it and then the voice sort of fades out and the voice is sort of fading in and fading out. And I remember... I was hearing this and I was thinking, man, that's a really interesting talk. This guy really has something amazing to say because I'm so, I was so interested in, you know, where we came from. What is the story of humanity? Because around that time I had actually come out of my Christian faith, right? My Christian upbringing. So this story of God created the world and he gave you a soul and it's life is a test for you to get to heaven. That whole thing had sort of crumbled for me and quite, quite spectacular spectacularly, I might add. It was a <laughs> quite a tragic moment in my life. But I was sort of in this th- place of like, okay, well, if that's not the answer, what is the answer? And <laughs> I didn't know it was Terence McKenna at the time. It was actually some years until I realized and worked out, well, okay, this is Terence McKenna talking about stoned ape theory. And since then, well, wow. I mean, I've had phases on and off for years of, you know, going back again and again and listening to so many Terence McKenna talks. And there is this one particular story that sort of dovetails nicely with my first encounter with Terence McKenna, where he's on one of his sort of psilocybin mushroom adventures where he would actually go out and seek in the forest and handpick his own mushrooms. And he did this in a Amazonian forest which had this history of genocide. And so the recent population had been killed because the story was there that the Americas enslaved the indigenous peoples to supply them with rubber. So this was before synthetic rubber was invented. And the story is that they would say, okay, this is your quota for how much rubber you need to supply for us. And anything under the quota, we will kill or sort of hack off that flesh in your peoples. So very brutal sort of genocide background in this forest and in this place in the South Americas. And in that space, in that sort of post-genocide jungle sort of outlandish uh, tribal land, he had been walking through with his guys and with his fellow seekers to find the mushrooms and to seek the shamans and to sort of learn about the culture and sort of just sort of on that general seeking walk. And he recalls being in the forest and sort of hearing these ghost sort of sounds. And when the light was just right, just sensing this spirit presence, this strange sort of thing that was just 
like you come into it and it comes out and it's a whisper and you hear it and you sort of don't hear it for a moment and you're like, what's that? What are they trying to say? I can't quite catch it, but I know that it's important. I know that it's interesting. I know that that's the sort of path I need to find. And for me, that was exactly my introduction to Terence McKenna, hearing it on the introduction to that album, LD50 by... Mudvayne. It was like I was hearing ghosts in this horror story, in this horror movie. It was like this voice that was whispering something to me that I wanted to find out more about. And there's an important insight there into what it means to have finding something new call us to be beckoned towards a discovery, to be attuned to the longing to discover those things. And really, the genius of Terence McKenna is that he listened to that in himself. He realized that there was something he needed to seek and find, and he did the legwork to actually go out, like to actually go out into the forest and to connect with the shamans and pick your own mushrooms. That's that's a massive lifelong adventure. Now there are of course <laughs> so many amazing stories that Terence McKenna tells and I'd like to share just a few of my favorites because they're worth recounting. They're really just eye-raising things that you can't believe unless you see it for yourself in <laughs> in a funny sort of way and that would be probably I think probably one of the best ones is where he's totally loaded on some substance and he's in the forest by himself and he comes to this point of gratitude and love where there's just tears pouring down his face and he holds out his arms sort of holding them up in in nature and the butterflies come down and land on his hands and he starts talking to them, right? And it's this amazing, glorious, beautiful opening where he understands and connects with the universe through these butterflies. And the other half of the story is that he tries to show this to his friend. He says, now come, come and see this. He gets someone to come along with him and he does it again and he holds out his hands And, of course, the butterflies don't come. (laughs) Nothing happens. And, of course, his friend is just like, oh, my goodness, that is pathetic. You are so lost. You have no idea what you are doing. You are just the epitome of insanity. And there's just something so, so relatable about that story, about so many personal experiences that I've had where... (laughs) You go to show someone or tell someone and it is an absolute failure. It just crashes and burns. And then there's another one where once again he's in the jungle or sort of somewhere off the beaten path and he's absolutely loaded on whatever substance it is, whether it's DMT or LSD or mushrooms or whatever. And he's sort of sitting there and he sees this blob. Pardon me. He sees this blob and his blurred vision in the distance and he starts to imagine that this blob is someone who's walking towards him 
and he imagines this person walking up to him, sitting down and saying, I bring gifts. I've got fresh oysters. I've got caviar. I've got prawns. I've got profiteroles. We can have a feast with all this luxurious food. And he's sort of imagining this in this sort of drug-induced fantasy and sort of thinking to himself at the same time, this is so absurdly outrageous. Why would I dream up such an abstract thing? And what happens is the blob actually does turn into a person in his vision, and he is a person that's walking towards him, and he does sit down across from him, and he does say, I bring gifts. We've got fresh oysters. We've got caviar. We've got profiteroles. We can have a feast. We can have a banquet, (laughs) right? And they sit down and they have this feast, with this high-class five-star food. And the backstory was that this guy who turned up had applied for a job in the kitchen of a five-star hotel and had quit on the first day because of some outrage of the way the place ran. And he had raided the kitchen and just, just racked or just stolen all of the food that he could carry in his backpack and just legged it. And so, (laughs) right, you can imagine Terence McKenna tripped out on his favorite chemical and having this banquet with this guy and then trying to explain, well, actually, I saw this happen before it happened, (laughs) right? And it's the sort of thing you would not believe, right? You wouldn't believe that story unless, of course, you had had some of those sorts of experiences for yourself. And really that's that's another sort of key staple in the Terence McKenna legacy is this very strong emphasis on personal experientialists. Experience, well, I mean what would what would be the word for it? I mean phenomenology, right? To be a, a, a phenomenological experiencer, if that's not too much of a verbatious overload. And yeah, I mean, the number of stories that are like that, that he sort of shares in his seminars and his talks are just, you know, there's hundreds of them. It's just, it's just endless, right? And to have someone that is so charming and to be so unique, that is a true celebration of an individual. That is a true celebration of someone we can admire. And to sort of get on into some of the meat of his ideas, I mean, firstly, I would say that he is a good speaker. He can speak with quite a high degree of accuracy in that he knows his boundaries. When he's not sure of things, he doesn't over-assert himself. He actually is quite accurate with how much he can assert the truth or the validity or the clarity of a certain idea. So he's he's very accurate. In some things he is very strong. Like when it when it's strong, he's strong. When he when it's weak, he's weak. And that's what I mean by accurate. And then also he is quite inventive 
with his words, right? To <laughs> to refer to male genitalia as the liquid exiting device, <laughs> right? That's just one example of his way with words, which really is so charming. And there, there is also, quite obviously, something that doesn't often get said about Terence McKenna, which is, which is always glaringly obvious, which is just the tone of his voice, his phrasing, that sort of semi-stoned, semi-academic mix. Now, some people might find that annoying. And maybe that's true. And there's actually something in people who sound annoying with their voices. Because if you can become accustomed to someone who has an annoying sounding voice, it actually becomes something unique and you sort of have it as a taste, right? It's an acquired taste. And maybe that is the case for Terence McKenna. Maybe some people hear him and think, well, he is very he's he's too peculiar. He's too detailed, right? He's too careful with the accuracy of his words, right? If he's if he's the equivalent of a a, a drawing artist, he's like a hyper-realistic dot artist, right? He's not doing big brush strokes with, you know, paint slopping everywhere. Maybe I'm a bit more like that. But he's actually really precise. And that, that become can become meticulous, right? Or sort of, it's like, oh, it's too detailed. You know, you, you, we want to be able to relax a little bit. But for me, I resonate very deeply with that style. And I just love the sound of his voice. So now to get to even deeper into the, or to sort of the core of his ideas. Now, he did contend with big ideas. He did work with fundamentals. He worked with epistemological phenomenons. He worked with grand scale pictures, right? His his image of history, how, like how far his history stretched from the past to the future, that was quite large. That was quite dynamic. And then with cross-cultural references, that was also quite rich, right? He studied many cultures, right? So he had his art history degree or studies, and he was also a mathematician, and he also had his personal experiences, and he also had his travels. So that made for this very rich worldview, this very open sort of mind. Now, a couple of things he said haven't stood up. So let's take a look at some of those and then we will get to some of the things that have stood up. So first of all, stoned ape theory hasn't really stood up and many people have refuted it. Many people have pointed out that actually it doesn't quite work like that and it couldn't have worked quite like that. And if you're not familiar with it, basically stoned ape theory is the idea that well, we were apes, and then we found magic mushrooms, and we ate them, and then that changed the way that our brains worked, and that gave rise to language and culture as human beings beyond just base primates. And, of course, McKenna had you know a whole range of different ways in which he would 
prop up that theory and different mechanics and different increments and different cultural phenomenons like collectivism and sexuality and ritual and initiation, right? So he would he would put it all into the various mechanisms that would unfold and have as conveyor belts or sort of unfolding phenomenons through culture and time. So it was very much a well-thought-out theory. It wasn't just some throwaway thing like I'm propping it up to you here, but there's been since then plenty of people who have said, no, that's not quite how it works. That's not quite really what happened. And basically, in essence, the reason it didn't work is because we as animals, as primates, set up our culture to satisfy our base needs, which is food, sex, and shelter. So much of what we do, work on, build, holders, customs, traditions, is poised around those three base needs. And if you put shelter, shelter is like survival, right? So you can call that as one large category. So to see, well, what does culture do? And to answer that by saying, well, it takes care of our food, sex, and shelter, that means that, well, there's no place for mushrooms. There's no place for spiritual realization. There's no place for higher consciousness. There's no place for actually getting into these levels of being which are beyond base needs. Now, you could say, well, what about religion? What about existentialism and philosophy? And that would be like, well, that's the counter-argument to that, but there's no way to bring in the stoned ape theory to that. There's no link between the mushrooms of the Sahara Desert and the religions of the world. Now, of course, (laughs) you could say, actually, there is, right? Because the idea that Jesus went into the desert and had the mushrooms and then had visions from God, well, that's another story, right? So you say, well, there's the link. But the problem with that is you're not actually getting the connection from, well, that as a tradition into, well, then how people take that tradition to affect their lives. Here's another way. If I'm not, if you're not following this, here's another way to look at this. Say instead of how did psilocybin mushrooms affect our culture, you say, how did eating meat affect our culture? Then you would say, well, now that we eat meat, once we started eating meat, that gave rise to a physical, biological condition within us that then lead, led to cultural phenomenons and ideas and thought And that was happening on a much grander scale than psilocybin mushrooms because they're they're exceedingly rare, right? It's a very narrow component of the diet as opposed to, well, eating meat, which was much more widespread. So 
if you want to claim that something has affected our evolutionary path, you need to be able to say, well, what sort of weight does it have? And what sort of depth does it need to have on us, on all the levels? And that's not to say that stoned ape theory isn't an interesting idea. That's not to say that it wasn't worth exploring. So, yeah, stoned ape theory, I think we can we can sort of move on from that now to some of, well, the more correct ideas and the things that actually have proven to be true or right in Terence McKenna's thinking. And probably, probably, I would say, his vision of where we were going in terms of cultural chaos, he was frightfully aware. He was right on the money. And the pictures that he paints of cultural divide, political upheaval, natural resources depleting, environmental collapse, this has proved correct. This has proved frightfully accurate. And in some ways, it's sort of like, well... You hear someone talking in the 70s and they say, well, we live in uncertain times. We live in chaotic times. And then you hear someone talking today and they say, well, we live in uncertain times. We live in chaotic times. And you think, okay, do people always say this? Is this always happening? Is this just a style of talking that people are drawn to? Sort of like if you imagine walking down the street and there's people standing on soapboxes. There's going to be one person that's always saying, the end is near. And then another person who's saying, no, everything's fine. Everything's going really well. Now, of course, maybe, (laughs) maybe the person who thinks everything is going really well is actually not on a soapbox and they're never going to say that and they're never going to have an audience. And the person that says, well, the end is near, they're always going to have an, they're always going to have an audience, right? (laughs) Maybe there is an element to that. But in the case of Terence McKenna, he was actually detailed. He was actually going into the particulars. He was actually building a picture, right? It's one thing to stand on a soapbox and say, the end is near. It's another thing to get up and say, well, the end is near, but okay, explain that. Exactly how? Exactly why? Who is responsible? What might some of the solutions be? Where are you drawing that from? What's your idea? How did you formulate that conclusion? And that's what Terence McKenna's genius was, because he could answer all those. He could look at politics. He could look at policy. He could look at the problems of democracy. He could look at how natural resources affected the success or fall of a civilization, of a country. He could look at colonization. He could look at genocide. 
and see, well, what are the ramifications? What are the lasting impacts? He could look at society and see, well, what are the things that are at play here? What is it that's affecting us? And that's sort of another that's sort of another branch of his, another big sort of central idea of his. If we say, okay, his prediction of the end of the world or the unraveling of the world and culture is one not to mention even nuclear proliferation, right? Okay, so that's one big idea that he had quite well and a very detailed grasp on. Another big one would be, well, what is it like for an individual to be in society? What does capitalism actually mean? And for that, he had the answer. He says that we've set up a culture which is designed to reward the quick fix, the quick gratification, working in a repetitive way, in a robotic way, and to be as appealing as you can be to the general masses in the most generic sense, right? Anything that is successful, anything that is a power in mainstream culture is designed to appeal to the broadest possible audience in the most generic sense. And it's achieved that, whatever it is, whether it's a brand, a product, a company, through repetition, through employing people who work like robots. And of course, in so many ways, (laughs) now it's becoming to be more like it is actually robots. And this was something McKenna, of course, spoke out about. He He could have the distaste of this in his mouth when he spoke. He could really smell the disgust of this. Because you miss out on, well, the idiosyncrasies of the individual, the creativity of the individual, the charm of the individual, the inventiveness, the uniqueness, which was all of the things that Terence McKenna embodied in his ideas, in his talking in his experience, in his stories. He was basically an an anti-culturist, like an anti-mainstream culturist. What word am I? I'm trying to invent a word here. Someone who is a, what is it? Culturist. (laughs) That's a tongue twister. I know it's not a word, but I'm, I'm trying to invent a word. An ist, like a pharmacist or a chemist or a lobotanist, culturalist, culti- cultural. <laughs> I can't say it. that's a real tongue twister. If you are a culture anti an anti culturalist. <laughs> I think I better give up trying to say that word. How would I spell it? C U L T U R culturalist. Cultu. How many syllables is it? Uh, I think I should give up. I don't know if I can invent that word, but I, I hope you get what I'm saying. I hope you know what I mean. So, yeah, like he he was an anti-culture person, which I'll say for. I'm not wanting to try and pronounce a word that I invented that doesn't exist again. <laughs> because he could see culture, right? 
he could contend with the mechanics of culture. And that was not just his idea or his some academic formulation that he'd got through reading books. That was his personal experience, even though it was also academically informed. That was his personal experience. That was his actual sense of himself, his actual identity. Now, another thing he got right, which in some ways is not quite right, which is that the future, which is now, would be starting to bank on people's interior worlds by, instead of selling physical things, selling light. So, his solution to, well, the issues, or one of the solutions he offered up was, instead of taking oil out of the ground and selling that, instead of taking raw materials and building them into objects and selling that, what we do is we sell things that are of the mind, things that are of the interior world, things that are of the noosphere. And he tells this story or this picture of, well, okay, say you have a contact lens and you put it onto your eye and then when you close your eyes, you see a menu and you have a world which you have created and you can invite people into to see. And there are objects there and it's basically all of the mind, so it's all made of light and we don't have to have all the hard, heavy lifting of extracting raw materials from the ground, producing them through industry and distributing them through consumerism to have your object. You can actually just do it in the mind. So that's that's his picture, right? And now, now we have this. This is just around the corner. You have the founder of Facebook, Mark Zuckerberg, walk, working on his set of glasses which you put on and then you look through and you can see the objects you can see a digital representation you can interact in a virtual reality which actually is also in relation to the real world the physical world it sort of overlays on top so the idea i think that terence mckenna had there was for him, something of a good thing. He felt this would be a kind of victory, a kind of step towards the utopia of humanity. This would be like, okay, now we can satisfy the needs of our minds and personalities and all the rest of it without having to do so much physical stuff and we can get a lot more from a lot less of the resources. But I think he misunderstood or he didn't He didn't really have the benefit of seeing what the internet was doing to our minds and our culture and that that those few decades really would have revealed a lot because it it shows that it's no guarantee the the infrastructure of mind is no guarantee that it will be a good thing it's no guarantee that it will be used for good it's human nature it's human consciousness it needs to be transformed, not the infrastructure of the way we 
experience connecting with each other and putting our consciousness out to the world. So there's probably a bit more to say on that. That's like quite a big rabbit hole that we can go down. There's a few other dynamics there that I'd like to discuss and maybe we will discuss them in a later conversation because I also have my own ideas and my own theories because I I have my personal opinions and ideas of what that world means, that virtual reality world. Now, I'm, I'm very much against Mark Zuckerberg's approach. I think fundamentally the idea is there, well, we say, okay, here's a guy that invented Facebook and he said, essentially, you tell me all about yourself and give me all your photos and I'll give you this social experience that will be positive. Seems like a fair trade, right? Let's see what happens. And we run that experiment to find that, well, uh, there is some positivity, but overall it's actually been quite negative. And I actually feel quite resentful and regretful about my experiences with Facebook. And many people share this sentiment. So with that in the background, then this guy is now saying basically again, okay, give me all your information give me all your ideas, give me all of your vision of your inner world, and I'll give you a personal positive experience of human connection and so on. Basically, it's Facebook 2.0 on a different level, except it's personal vision and personal ideas. And it's like, well, you messed it up the first time. What makes you think you're not going to mess it up again? So that's basically my take on it. But on the other hand, I do feel that the way forward is how Terence McKenna saw it. Terence McKenna had the right idea of having this interior world, this sharing of imagination, of inner vision. It's just that I don't think we can trust the people like Mark Zuckerberg to get us there. Now, to move on from that, we will come back to that. That is quite a big one. We do need to sort of go deeper and work out quite a few of the metrics and sort of explain a few things, but I just want to move on. Now, one thing Terence McKenna sort of was not quite right about, he was sort of half half right about and half wrong about, and this was his idea that we need to go back to an earlier stage. So he was big on shamanism. He was big on studying these shamans who apparently, from the Western perspective, had this archaic way of being or living, this archaic, barbaric kind of culture. And to study them and to realize, well, actually, there's some very deep validity here. There's something we need to learn from here. That was one of Terence McKenna's great lasting contributions but I think he was wrong because his idea went too far. He was more like, well, we actually need to live like them. We actually need to raise that up and make that our central culture. And I think what he missed, and here's how I put it, he missed that there is an arc to culture. The difference would be, imagine we start at a point and then we evolve forwards. Things become more and more complex more and more complex, we evolve to a certain point. And then at a certain point, which is like what we could say is the halfway point, 
then we say, oh, we've evolved wrong. We've done it wrong. We have to go back. We have to go backwards. Unevolve, unevolve, regress, 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 and go back to the previous state. And that's our enlightenment. Now, that is basically Terence McKenna's idea. And it's wrong because what actually we need to do is start at a certain point, evolve forward, move forward, and then we get to this halfway point and we have this realization where we say, okay, we've done this wrong. We need to somehow get past where we are, but we actually go forwards. We actually evolve more and we follow the arc. And the arc actually goes full circle. We actually end up back, in a sense, where we were as shamans, and yet with a totally different way of being like that. Because a lot of the nasty things that shamanism has, the things that go wrong with shamanism, the things that are just plain downright inhumane, Terence McKenna overlooks his his love for that culture sort of blinded his ability to see the terrible things in shamanism, things like abusive training, things like abusive and oppressive hierarchies, things like dominant relationships, whether it's patriarchal or matriarchal, I've forgotten the word for it, monarchy, patriarchy. I've forgotten the words. That's okay. You know what I mean. I believe you know what I mean. So that that that's a long list. The things that are wrong with shamanism, the things that are brutal about it, the things that are unacceptable to the way humans relate to each other uh, is quite long with shamans. And I've met people who have had shamanistic training, like modern day life, real life, this day and age people who've had shaman training, shamanistic training, and, and they've come away just thinking that was the some of the most terrible stuff of my life, the most horrific stuff, and I should never have gone through that. So that's something I think was sort of a half-truth. I think his his idea was poised for the right direction because we do obviously need to follow this arc through and whether we're halfway, three quarters of the way, two thirds of the way or whatever, then that's another debate about increments and well, what what does this arc look like? And there, there are many answers to that, right? There are many ways in which we can paint that arc and actually see the steps because the arc is there. Now we know. We know how things end in some ways on one level, and we know how we get there. The answers are there. There's a number of ways in which we can explain them. It's just a matter of, well, semantics as to those details. But Terence McKenna sensed it and yet didn't quite put the two together. So, yeah. And I mean, there's there's really so many more... There's so many more big ideas that were so big. It's it's almost like Terence McKenna was so big that it was heroic of him even to even to tackle those ideas. Like to even to even get into the boxing ring 
with that idea is heroic. To to even stand one round with some of the massive ideas that he had is is, is an achievement. Even if you lose that round, right? It's almost like to, to play a game of chess against Magnus Carlsen, right? There's an absolute glory in that, even though you're going to lose. Absolutely, you will lose, <laughs> right? To get in the ring with Mike Tyson or Muhammad Ali, there's something heroic in that. To even stand up to that, even though you're going to lose, right? You're going to come off second best. <laughs> there's a... There's a heroicism, a hero, heroicity. I'm sort of inventing too many words today. I don't know why. Heroicit, heros, heroic. Uh, I can't invent it. I can't do it. <laughs> I think I should. I think I should give myself a quota as to how many words I can invent per conversation that we have. Probably keep that at about one. I think. <laughs> Maybe one per episode is good, but I should also maybe assess myself whether that it is an, a successful invention. <laughs> maybe it's not, but yeah. So it's not it's not fair for me to like come along and criticize Terence McKenna and to say, oh, oh, well, that's wrong or that's right, and to say there is something humbling in realizing his position and realizing his world for where he was at and to see that actually actually he knew he could see the future he he was someone who had actually traveled that arc he'd actually gone full circle it was just a matter of well how does he make sense of it how did he articulate it and he articulated it with style, with charm. And really, that's, at the end of the day, all that matters. <laughs> right? To be someone who can entertain as a speaker. To be someone who can just give us something to chew on. Give our minds something wholesome. That is rare. That is rare. That is precious. To really work with something, with your heart in the right place. To make it personal and to have it nested in serious experience, real experience. And to have it not without a dose of history, of academia, of like scientific truth, real hard truth. That is something to be cherished. So really this is my celebration of Terence McKenna. This is my sort of ode to him to say, well, thank you. I think it's it's easy to, with hindsight, see, well, how things turned out, right? There's always that. You always have to consider that when you're talking about someone who has been and gone and passed. They've had their say in the time and place that they lived. And now we have, well, a few extra decades and those decades are rather significant because of the exponentiality of the change in our culture that we've seen. So that's always something to consider. And considering that, 
considering that, Terence McKenna was a genius. He really did know. He really did tap into something that was beyond his time, that was beyond his place. He was successful in transcending his culture, in transcending his conditioning, his background. And the way he did that, fundamentally, was by seeking, by actually going out and finding things. You know, he spent years in India. He spent years searching for shamans and alternative lost tribes. He spent years traveling the world. He spent years studying. He spent years reading books, right? This is someone who has a very deep thirst to know. And I don't mean know in an intellectual level. I mean know in an experiential level. In a personal, real, right-down-to-your-bones sort of way. And for all those reasons, we will forever remember Terence McKenna, the one-of-a-kind, the one-and-only. What charm, what beauty, what an amazing soul. So I think that's probably at least enough to chew on for now. It is a very vast wealth of insight that Terence McKenna has. In some ways, it's it's almost like pointless to. <laughs> it's it's almost like now I'm the the one taking on the Muhammad Ali, and Terence McKenna is the <laughs> Muhammad Ali. It's sort of funny how that is, isn't it? <laughs> so, at least at least that's something. At least that's a start. I I think we'll probably talk about him again. I mean, there's a lot of things here that we've discussed which we can go into in more detail. So, thanks very much. Hope you're having a good day. And that's all I have to say for now.